and we have a couple thousand employees. Um, and yet I still send everybody in the company a handwritten birthday card. Yes, that does mean I write a lot of birthday cards every week. But um, that is level one of appreciation. This is the Job Stories Podcast, how people find work that matters. What we do on this podcast is celebrate stories. So we just want to talk to you about your story, what you're doing now, what's your job now, and and how, how you got there. Um, and everything in between. And um, whenever you're ready, just introduce yourself and kind of talk about what you're doing now and, and a little bit about your story. Sure. Yeah. My name is Robbie Allen. Uh, currently, I'm the CEO of a platform in GI services called OneGI, um, a national platform mostly concentrated in the middle of the country, kind of down the Mississippi River over to the Ohio Valley. Um, you know, in all the states you would expect. <laughs> and so uh, heavily concentrated on gastroenterology practices, ASCs, and all the ancillary services that go with that. I did not start out in that area, uh, much like you guys. I was an entrepreneur when I began my post-college career. Uh, well before it was cool street cred, I dropped out of college in my senior year <laughs> as a, a third quarter senior at Georgia Tech, actually, <laughs> much to my parents' dismay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I had started a company that was one of the first telehealth companies in the United States mm. and uh, just kept requiring more and more time. And so when I did that, uh, focused on the company and got it up and running, eventually sold that company in 2012 to Specialty Care, headquartered in Nashville, mm. and ran part of the, the country for them and all of their service lines. My first exposure to sort of big corporate uh, politics, internal gossip and clicks. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I learned a lot in both areas and have since spent a great deal of time working with incubators, both at Georgia Tech uh, and post-Georgia Tech, as well as been on several boards. And I got kind of sucked back into uh, turnaround management a couple of years ago and turned around a big orthopedic practice. And that's what led me to 1GI. So that kind of is a rapid story through the arc there. We can expand on any of those areas if you like. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I'll be asking really for myself, but you mentioned about some of the incubators. What are some of the um, practical tips that y'all help entrepreneurs and um, startups there deal with challenges? Like we, we talk a lot about handling the no's and also handling the wins as well. What might Absolutely. what might you say to those folks? Like, how do we handle how do we handle lows? How do we handle highs? That kind of thing. You know, I'm a big fan of getting a big, well, maybe not a big, but a group of people you trust that don't work with you, that maybe have kind of been there before. You can call it some people call it your own little personal board, mm -hmm. and, and listen to them, but don't follow every piece of advice. Mm -hmm. You know, the the reality of being an entrepreneur is a lot of it is often fake it till you make it. A lot of it is trying new things. If I had listened to everybody who told me to don't do that, I wouldn't be here today, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you know that group of people can serve as a break when you kind of get a little overly wild and out of the out of the range of what you should be doing. So it's, it's stick to itiveness is the the number one thing that differentiates these startups is the ones who are willing to simply effectively kill themselves to get the thing up and running usually went out over idea, over funding, over any of that. You know, it's that commitment to 
the success of the entity. It requires an idea that is functionally capable of surviving. Mm. But it, you know, absent that, it's the entrepreneurial teams that are willing to gut it out through all the troughs because there are troughs and not lose their mind on the peaks and get enough staying power that people recognize you're going to be in that sector. And then it tends to take off. Mm. And I've seen that pattern play out over and over and over again. I love that. This, I, I, I'm, I love that answer about, especially about um, having a team around you that you can't ask for advice, but it doesn't mean, or just talk to them about it, but it doesn't mean you have to take everything they say um, to heart that it's profound. Cause I find myself getting sometimes insecure asking for advice. Cause I'm like, if eventually if you poll 10 people over one thing, they're all going to say something different. <laughs> then you just end up confused. Um, so it's kind of cool to hear you answer that question like that. So that was, that was really profound to me personally. Excellent. No, I can't agree more. I, I can't tell you the number of times that, um, particularly if you're innovating new trail by definition, even your advisory board or your, your people you trust that have done things that you, that are impressive enough that you want to talk to them and seek their advice. Mm -hmm. They haven't done that. And it, it has to work in the environment that you're in and the way that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're an entrepreneur, the company is always at the beginning, a reflection of you. It's an extension of you. It's mm -hmm. effectively part of you. Hmm. Robbie, when you look back at your career, were there, I mean, I'm sure there were like moments of inflection where you took a path and it brought you to the next point and brought you to the next point and now you're here. Um, do you remember a time, um, I'm just thinking about, I, I was talking to a candidate um, a few weeks back and he was like, yeah, well, I've just done so many different things and I don't really see it adding up to value for the company. And so would you say that you've hit a moment of inflection, uh, a, a choice, and you, if you had taken the other path, might your life had worked out differently? Or um, do you think that all the twists and turns of your life really have added up to the person that you are today? I think that's a great question. I, I think I think it hits on on one key rule I have in hiring people. And I don't I don't like to hire people who can't clearly articulate failures in their life. Um, <laughs> I don't want to ever be somebody's first failure, at least not at the senior executive level. I, I think you you need you learn from those. Mm. Somebody who's only been successful really hasn't learned anything other than their winner's bias is going to overtake decision making eventually. Um, there have been several of those inflections. You know, I, I started out in school wanting to be an astronaut and design rockets. I was an aerospace and chemical engineering major um, when the Cold War came and ended. And that, that there were no jobs. There were no jobs building rockets, flying planes. It was, you know, we were talking about a world without war and it was just the wrong major. Um, by the way, I didn't want to go work in an oil and gas field either. I, I took a look at that work and decided that was probably not for me. But those kinds of things happen and you think, okay, well, medicine, that sounds good. Um, and that was the first inflection point. And the, the second and third were probably when we came very, very close to going bankrupt. Um, as in we'd hire the bankruptcy lawyers to liquidate the company. Hmm. And I think that particular inflection point with the board talking to me saying, look, um, a lot of the decisions you're making and the way that you're kind of autocratically running things isn't the way we're going to replace you, whether or not the company survives. 
um, those kinds of inflection points um, serve to to broaden your perspective in your mind if you agree to take them in as learning points. Mm-hmm. If you see them as failures and walk away, um, you know, it can change the course, certainly changes the course of your career tra- trajectory, but it doesn't give you those friction points to grow. And I look back on those and, and those broadened my, um, my desire to learn. They broadened at first about people, but then about process. And, you know, that led to realizing, hey, I've got a lot to learn, kind of started a, you know, I dropped out of college early at the beginning of this and have since been accruing graduate degrees at a prodigious rate, not because I want them, but because I get interested in a new area. And those areas continue to add focus, power, and um, frankly, capability that you, you don't think about. Um, you know, you never think that public policy would be something that would help you in leading a healthcare company. It, it does. Mm. It's an incredibly powerful piece of information to know and understand. So I love people that bring a broad range. I think people that can articulate, particularly think about a single mom who managed a family with four children after kind of leaving the workforce, wherever she was before she came back to the workforce those folks have they bring an incredible amount of what amounts to world-class project management (laughs) Um, they may not quite understand the gantt chart but that's frankly fairly easy to teach that's awesome has there been a um throughout your career just looking back on it have there been a set of values that you've really held to during all the changes and does that translate to the company you're leading now and um, if that makes sense do you mind to touch on that a little bit has there just been some a North star that you've pointed to basically the whole way through. And, and that's maybe that's helping you lead your company now. Um, if you might have touched on that a little bit. No, I think that's, I think that is the seminal question today. Um, I think the values drive culture and culture as often the quote is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, it's not only the leader's values though. Um, my personal values, uh, and they're deeply important to me. Uh, come down to really one quote that I've often used. It's when given the choice to be right or be kind, choose kind and Mm. you'll never be wrong. Mm. Um, We use that internally. We use that as a focused point of interaction with our customers, with our, in effect, our patients, but also to value our stakeholders. Um, And that includes our staff, includes our patients and our community. So those are deeply held for me. Um, The last piece of that that I would add that has served me incredibly well and is something that all of the organizations I work with have begun to adopt is to treat endings with the same care that we treat beginnings, regardless of the circumstances. Mm. Goes hand in hand with the first, but I think we don't think about it that way. Mm. Whether that's a termination for somebody with bad behavior, whether that's you know, saying and honoring somebody's contribution, even though they're moving on to something else and it's not our first choice, whether it's the loss of a customer. Mm. So we pay a lot of attention to that. I personally pay a lot of attention to that. Well, that's great. You cannot answer this if you don't want to, but um, I'm kind of interested when you have to terminate employees, how do you do that and take care of the employee, um, but also show them that like, you need to find another opportunity somewhere else? You know, it's a great question. It's one that we spend a lot of time trying to train all of our internal managers on uh, with regard to respect, with regard to kindness, with regard to your frame of reference to that person. 
Um, we do a lot of training around some of the work of a gentleman named Brian Stevenson, who is known for his Equal Justice Foundation. He does a lot of work with capital um, folks on death row. And one of his quotes is, nobody is as bad as the worst thing they've ever done. Mm-hmm. So you know, everybody that's committed a crime is also a son or a daughter or a father or a mother. It helps to start with that framing perspective with everybody that works for you. Now, obviously, if somebody came in and shot your secretary in front of you, that's a different presentation mm-hmm. than just simply what we're more likely to deal with in the workplace. But nobody comes into work after you've hired them and you've gone through that process and everybody liked each other at one point and then simply tanks on the job without something behind that. And you may not be able to fix it, but recognizing that this person obviously has something going on with them that isn't for you to fix, but is for them to work on, being direct, being candid, being compassionate, and recognizing, uh, again, that they don't have to be happy about it. I've, I have yet to fire somebody that that left saying, oh, that was great, Robbie's an awesome guy. Um, But I do think if you spoke to them, they would say, yes, I was treated with respect. I disagree with the reason or, you know, it was really Sarah's fault or Bill's fault. They just made me look bad. But no, um, I was it was handled with care. Um, We take a look at severance. We take a look at what's going on with that individual timing, um, things like that that come into play so that we can make sure we're not contributing to the fight. Yeah. And so let's kind of talk about the opposite. Um, how do you promote, um, best take care of, make sure that they know that you like them, appreciate them, value them, your top performers, your, um, top 10% of folks that really move the needle for the organization. How do you take care, um, for lack of a better term of them? I, I think that's also a fair question. I I think it starts with the ways in which you show appreciation, um, there are two different answers. So for the for the organization itself, and we have a couple thousand employees, um, and yet I still send everybody in the company a handwritten birthday card. Mm-hmm. Yes, that does mean I write a lot of birthday cards. <laughs> but um, that is level one of appreciation. That is everywhere. And what what you're trying to say and doing something that simple is say that I recognize everybody here has the potential to be a top performer. I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that you've got our support as you step up, we wanna support you on the rise. I think the key to keeping the top performers and those that that relate directly to me, for all of my directs, I know exactly what their language of appreciation is, their language of apology is. I We understand each other's sort of internal drivers. We use assessment tools a lot on those teams. And we also do individual leadership training as a group, well, group leadership training around that so that we all have a common vocabulary. And that allows us to then specifically target praise. And I think you do that meaningfully. You don't do blanket praise. If, if Mike was the one who stood out this week, you talk about what Mike did, both privately and when appropriately publicly. And so that tends to keep those folks motivated. It's, it's a subtle competition. We're, we're not a heavy sales organization where you, know, you kind of want the, the public, I hate to use the word public shame, but you know, nobody wants to be on the bottom of the list of performers. So you mm. kind of use that as a motivating tool. Mm. That's not really effective on high-performing executive teams outside of sales. Mm. What is 
effective is appreciating the work they do specifically. Mm. And so we, we make a pretty big effort to do that in the language that they want to receive it in. You know, and it's it's as simple as the love languages. If you want to extend it to relationships, do they want gifts? Do they want quality time, words of appreciation? How how is it that they want to receive that praise? Hmm. That's really cool. Are there um, what are some things you like to see? I mean, outside of like just technical skills that may that you may need out of candidates. What are some things outside of that that like you look for? Um, whether it be just even even character stuff. Is there something that you're seeing? that is working well for you on the hiring side as far as like character traits that you like to see as far as maybe it's um team player anything like that just outside of even the technical skills sure i so i think that's a key question i think we've spent the last hundred years hiring based on skills Mm -hmm. as a primary rule you know we look at the resume and we oh they've got a cissp they've got Mm -hmm this, they've got that, this is what I need. And we fail to ask about attributes. Mm -hmm. So we spend a great deal of time focused on attributes. And if we had to name the ones that are most successful at the senior levels, it's going to be agility, ability, right? Those two, ability and agility go hand in hand, but they can't have those two without also having a deep and abiding sense of um, emotional stability. In other words, back to the kindness and respect piece. Folks who are hot off the handle really don't serve us well. And if you, I'm sure you're familiar with the famous sort of graph bar where the the vertical axis is trust and the horizontal axis is performance. And those folks that are really, um, well, flip it actually, make performance a vertical. And those folks that are on the upper left, in other words, very high performers, but very low trust Mm. are actually more caustic to an organization than the folks in the bottom right mm. who are low performers, but very high trust. So we pay attention to that probably almost as much as we, we pay attention to skills. In fact, one of our philosophies is we can usually teach the skills. What we can't teach are those attributes of agility, intellectual ability, and sort of acute, you know, able to handle acute situations and yet remain emotionally sober. Mm. So that's a big one for me. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'll brag on Matthew and harass him at the same time, but he's, he, he's a key example of that. Cause Matthew started his career as a fifth grade math teacher. So oh. if you want to talk about skills, knowing that this guy was teaching our youth math is really, really funny. Yeah. I barely passed third grade math, Yeah, he, but the college algebra multiple times. Right. <laughs> but he loved kids and was a phenomenal fifth grade math teacher. So, but if they would have asked him for his sophomore year of college, uh, math final scores he might not have got hired right? right but he ended up being a great math teacher so i i it's funny it's just funny looking back on it now but you're spot on and it held true with matthew's career so i think that's great uh, i think that's a prime example of exactly what i'm talking about yeah when you look at um your extended learning you kind of made mention to it earlier um how do you go about assessing okay this is the grad certificate i want or this, these are the classes I want to take online. Do you, is it just your interest or is it, okay, we keep running across this same problem as an organization. I think I need to learn about this. Do y'all talk about it as a executive team? How do you decide what you um, learn upon that year, 18 months, that sort of thing? That's another great question. I, I, I encourage um, and we have a policy internally of tuition reimbursement that's agnostic to what you're doing. 
we really don't care. Um, that is cool. So I, and, and it's, yeah, I think it's, I wish more people did it. You know, the, the whole notion only if it directly benefits the company, huh. why, <laughs> you mm, know, I mean, it benefits yeah. the company if you're learning. Um, for me personally, it's generally out of interest. I, I went back to school for a master's in cyber in computer engineering for cybersecurity because at a board level, sitting on the boards of companies, it was increasingly clear to me that we have no directors or very, very few, I don't want to malign other directors in the community, that know enough about cybersecurity to do the director's job, which is to know the questions to ask. Mm. It's not that we have to be the expert, but we better know the questions. Mm. And so that has been a powerfully, well, both a powerful and disturbing experience to learn, to learn about the world of cybersecurity. I'm not sure that it helped me sleep at night. I think it probably, (laughs) Um, but it it was a a kind of a powerful addition. I I, I went back and studied public policy because I have zero and absolutely negative interest in running for public office, but I wanted to understand better kind of what the drivers were for that. And I will tell you, it was a, a powerful experience. Um, it definitely made me better at what I do in tangential ways. And so we share those experiences internally on the executive team. And I think out of the 12 people who report to me, either directly or on a tangential axis, um, the vast majority of them over any given five-year period are either directly pursuing, um, not often degree-based programs, um, only two that I know of are doing that, but it's a broad range. One of them is, is going back in psychology, um, and it's not who you would think. You know, It's not my HR lead that's going back to school to study mm-hmm. psychology. Mm-hmm. It's actually over in IT. So I, and I think that's when we look at these developmental axes and, and somebody says, okay, well, I'm, a, I'm an amazing technical operator I've been the CISO. Now I want to move into the CIO job. And, and I, I really need to understand how to talk to other executives who don't simply throw around um, information integrity and uh, you know coded hash and, and the rest of the things that are coming in in the vocabulary of the IT department. I need to sell these things. I need to be able to communicate as an executive. And we talk through what are the things you need to learn to do that. And this individual has said, you know what, I, I really, I want to better understand how this organization functions from a leadership perspective. And so that's what he's studying. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. I um, that's awesome. So I guess for the last 10 or so years, I've been like a Coursera, I don't know, addict, I guess. <laughs> and so I'll take like uh, half of the course and then move on to another I'm not very good at obtaining this certificate you know, that you get for completion, but um, it is interesting. I've taken, shoot, I've probably been a part of close to a hundred different courses now. And it's funny how all of them, I learn a little bit from each of them because I don't take the whole thing. Um, but it's interesting how um, all of those end up playing into my work life at some point in time during the year. Um, I know it's not that maybe this Excel course doesn't really have anything to do with the job that I'm doing right now, but it actually kind of does. Or I know that this um, communication course and negotiation maybe doesn't deal with my job directly right now, but it kind of does in six months. So I wonder if your employees are finding that same thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, I think you nailed it. And I think I, I think it's Bill Gates who shares your Coursera addiction. He, um, mm-hmm. 
he proudly on some segment I watched on him showed his collection. Mean, of course, it's probably every Coursera course ever known to man. On and he show, probably completes them. <laughs> he probably does. That's, you know. <laughs> but it's that broad range. You know, it's when you can pull range. And I think we've lost that art. Mm-hmm. You know, we no longer, the traditional path to leadership is no longer a liberal arts degree followed by some work and a little bit of specialization and then 20 years of learning. So you come to it with a broad thought process. Now it's a much more focused collegiate experience and you're jumped into a job that continues to sort of shove you into an opportunity cone. And so the more you can force that cone open, uh, my argument is the, the, the more agile you are, the more you're able to bring in different solutions, uh, which I think all the studies show that the more you can think outside of your particular brand or technicality, the more likely you are to come up with a creative solution. And Matthew just mentioned his story a little bit, but that's kind of what led to us starting our business, right? Like just all the, all the twists and turns that you took and all the certifications and all that. Just it, It's just wild though, looking back on it. Like you probably didn't know however many years ago you were studying AWS stuff that would lead to us ultimately starting this business. So time is so funny in that way. So that's really cool to hear you talk about that too, Robbie. No, I think it sounds great. I'm excited to hear that you guys are, uh, well, you'll have Amazon, you know, right downtown now. So you can, if you want to go enhance your AWS skills. There you now, go. Yeah. Stones throw. Yeah, we can. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie, one of my mentors back in 2013 told me about the cloud. And I was like, does that have to do with like Apple and send your stuff to iCloud? I didn't know a thing about it. I was a fifth grade math teacher. Didn't know a thing. <laughs> Again, which is funny. Yeah. And, and so... But it goes back to learning. I just like learn this and then I learn the next thing and then I learn the next thing. And then all of a sudden I have three AWS certifications and a CompTIA certification, but it just starts with learning a little bit. And then um, I'm sure you have employees just get addicted to learning psychology and then get really interested in learning other things. So I think it's great. I I haven't heard that from a CEO yet. Um, It's great. Yeah. So well done. No, I encourage it. I, I'm glad to hear you're doing it. I think it's, I think it's that creative meandering that is what really fosters innovation. And in in the world of COVID and and the change that's kind you know the, just a, a global threshold level of change activity that's kind of higher than it's ever been in my lifetime, the innovators will win. Mm. And at bare minimum, just learning all these new skills and and. I mean, in bare minimum, you're just a better conversationalist in that place. So well in leadership, right? And then Matthew. Exactly. Yeah. And so it plays itself out with Matthew communicating with candidates or hiring managers or whatever. So at bare minimum, yeah, it just makes us better at talking to each other. So. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Robbie, no, as, as you look forward to this year and maybe the next five, 10 years, if y'all even think about looking 10 years down the road, um, how do you, where do you see the innovations um, kind of start to play out in your, in your world? Are there any, um, like we, we just talked to a blockchain CEO earlier and I just wonder if you see anything like that coming that's not here yet, but that um, if you don't get on it, you might um, miss out on a segment of the market. Oh, I think, look, I think, um, for all the hype of crypto, 
yeah. I think national cryptocurrencies will kind of end that hype, right? I, you're not going to have the existing governmental systems. China's already ha already has the digital yuan, so you'll start and, and America will follow suit as well. The rest of the Western world, which will kind of quiet down some of the um, you know, more fun to watch and more volatile aspects of the crypto world and the blockchain side, but. We are already using blockchain in smart contract execution, but you can also see the natural applications of blockchain to the the, the world of patient records and electronic files and things like that. Mm. In terms uh, of kind of handing these things off, um, that's one of the the chain of custody on these things is one of the biggest, most contentious aspects of electronic medical records. Um, but the single biggest driver, the single biggest area of change for healthcare, without a doubt will be a consumer focus. Um, you know, we're, we're all in Nashville. I'm headquartered in Nashville as well. And if you, the, the rising tension level of every healthcare executive in the town right now is because Amazon's in town. Why are they in Nashville? Does this mean they want to enter healthcare? And the reason everybody gets kind of fearful, healthcare is a very brick and mortar, highly infrastructured entity as a business, as a sector of our economy, uh, representing you know close to five, six, seven trillion dollars, depending on how you measure it, that's exactly the kind of thing that a very consumer-focused business entity can disrupt, really meaningfully. And there's not a lot of consumer focus in healthcare. It is not a business that has typically been designed to be B two C uh, in the way that Amazon is. And many other companies. It's not just Amazon. Maybe outside of sort of the businesses we don't want to talk about, you know, in erectile dysfunction and hair loss, those healthcare aspects are very B2C. <laughs> and those are they're very successful in that world. But your, you know, your cardiologist is not about being open outside of nine to four and on Monday through Thursday, kind of thing. So those two trends, I think, are driving um, the the third trend that underlies this is the availability of advanced data analytics across population sectors. We're able to do things now. We're able to make average doctors absolutely geniuses with the application of overlay AI on all kinds of things around diagnostic decisions. And so healthcare is getting better and better, um, which again, back to this consumer focus, we're also talking about the hospital of the future being your home. We do dialysis mm -hmm. in your house now. I'm wearing a ring on my right finger that tells my pulse and how I'm walking and when I sleep and all my blood oxygen levels. And, and it's a ring, the size of my wedding ring. Hmm. So, pretty, and pretty amazing. Your first company you mentioned was a telehealth company. And now, I mean, now that's just such a, such a large, large, large industry. That's popping up. I, so I wish I had recorded the sound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had a room full of Hayes 9,600 baud modems, but I think it was 4,000 square feet. And the sound was absolutely deafening. <laughs> You talked about hair loss just a second ago. That ship sailed for me a long time ago. <laughs> and that ship doesn't have rear view mirrors. It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> well, Robbie, we 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 uh we really appreciate you coming on. You're awesome. We we this has been really, really cool. We're kind of starting to get close to the time that we kind of try to do this. So yeah. like Matthew, Matthew mentioned earlier, if you just want to mention how folks can connect with you if you'd like for them to, um go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. If you if you want to reach out to me, um, my email is Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E dot Allen, A-L-L-E-N at one G-I dot com. It's O-N-E-G-I dot com. And feel free, please reach out. Um, enjoy the debate, enjoy innovation, enjoy kind of ways to collaborate. 
and mentor. Um, it's, uh, I certainly didn't get here by myself and certainly happy to help others. That's awesome. And knowing that you're in Nashville too, if it's all right, I'm going to offline, I'll reach out to you at some point that makes sense. I'd like to buy coffee sometime. We get Absolutely. I would love it. Thanks for having me on guys. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate love what you, you're man. doing. I appreciate <laughs> you. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Thanks. Man. Absolutely. Take care. You too.